Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Wednesday night, we were having the, uh, we were doing the self-compassion class, and um, I was reading from one of the topics in the class, and um, I've read this before many times, but it really did strike me this time in another way. I heard it differently, and so I'll read to you a little bit of what we were discussing, and then um, we'll, I'll tell you about the topic. So, um, the mind wanders much of our lives, according to an article in Science Magazine, some research study, that the mind, minds wander almost 50% of the time that we're awake. And everyone in the class, we all looked at each other and we went, it's probably a lot more than 50%. <laughs> we think that's, that's a slow, right? Um, <laughs> We have um, about 70,000 thoughts per day, right? 95% of them are repeaters. We've thought them before, right? Um, and one study says 80% of them are a little more fear-based or negative. Am I explaining our minds right now, right? Uh, 35 to 48 thoughts per minute. We are busy, this brain. This is a very busy brain. An extraordinarily efficient mechanism that we identify as us and then suffer because we identify with it. Um, and then they talked about the default mode network does three basic things. There's um, some new study of the brain that talks about the default mode of the brain where three areas of the brain are lighting up and working together when we are not in an activity, when we're kind of relaxing, mind-wandering, daydreaming. And I'm not clear that this um, research is already, I think people are still debating this concept, but it's still been out there and, and well-researched. So we have this um, default mode network when we're kind of relaxing and we're not super concentrating, hyper-concentrating on something. And um, so, so your mind is just rolling around, you're driving or walking or doing something like dusting or cleaning that doesn't take a lot of mental activity. And um, the mind will be active and chattering, if you notice, right? It creates a sense of self, has memory, creates memories about you, tells a story of you. Um, it projects that self into the past and future. Um, and for a lot of people, depending upon your particular brain and where your upbringing, your conditioning, your life experiences, whether you have had trauma or not, um, your family, it could be more negative than positive, more fear-based. It could be more shaming or critical. Um, just depending upon the flavor of your brain, right? Um, and then the, it tends to look for problems and solves problems. Did you notice that if daydreaming and just mind-wandering can be very problem-solving and looking for problems? And um, 
So we're not really, we're more hardwired for survival and looking for threats than actually ease and happiness, which we know. So I read this to the class, and it really hit me. Um, so it says, the brain is actually just as busy when we relax as when we focus on a difficult task. Um, so, well, I thought, you know, this explains a lot. <laughs> And I'll go into that a little bit more. But it brought me back to the Buddhist teachings from the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and how we apply mindfulness. Because the research is also suggesting right now, currently, and who knows if this will be um, validated research through time, that mindfulness practice, the practice of sati mindfulness, um, pulls us out of that default network into present moment awareness where we're much more likely to find peace and ease and clarity. And when we're in that default network, we're much more likely to be stressed out for the reasons that I just explained. We're not as happy. And I think I feel, and I don't know about you, when I'm in that kind of ruminating, problem-solving, going into the past, future, fear-based kind of thing, I feel drained. Don't you? I, it feels like it's draining. So that the mindfulness practice is pulling us out of that tendency into the present moment through awareness of the body and awareness of our five senses, how we're taking in the world. Um, and bringing us into this now, present moment experience. And um, it's suggested in the research that there's more ease, happiness, peace, and clarity there. That's good news. <laughs> and um, I guess I found this very interesting this week because I noticed the shift in myself in the mornings. In the mornings, I, I like to wake up and, uh, possible, have an extended period of practice in the morning. And I'm able to do that because I can work, go to work late and, and stay later so I can do it. So I'll do a lot of sitting, walking, mindful activity, mindful eating, um, some movement even listening to music, I really try to start the day with the intention to practice in the moment for as long as I can. It's very lovely, it's beautiful. It's lovely to watch the sun come up that way, have the first cup of coffee, pet the dog, you know, see the light change, just wonderful. But then what I noticed is once I'm out of the house, it's almost like I give my mind permission to go into the default mode, mm -hmm. and it starts doing this very thing that, <coughs> that um, they talked about. Um, and I'm watching, I'm still watching it, you know, or somebody's watching, who knows. Um, but I really noticed the contrast of the two states this week. So it became very interesting to me, which brings me back to the Satipatthana Sutta. And um, so the topic is affectionate awareness, because really 
we can't begin to work with the intensity of all this, right? Our own mind, and then our mind meeting this world, which is so filled with challenge right now um, for many of us, and uncertainty for some of us and others not. Without a great deal of affection and compassion and kindness, you know, it's really like um, the the sweetness has to hold the practice right now. So when we're looking at the mind, in um, Pali, the word is citta, and it doesn't just mean this thinking mind, this intellectual mind. It really refers to the mind and the heart together, and the embodied sense of emotion and mind together. So uh, it's not my intellectual knowing, it's my knowingness, heart up. Um, and um, in the third foundation of mindfulness, we're watching the mind and mind states. We're looking at what arises. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples of this, and then we'll read a little from what the Buddha said. So the first one that I want to give you is a little um, exercise that I do with a class that I teach at work on um, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And we start the class like this all the time, every time we cycle through. And so I'll let you participate with me in this. So as I read the sentence, I want you to visualize See whatever comes in your mind, what you're thinking of. John was on his way to school. He was worried about the math lesson. He was not sure he could control the class again today. It was not part of a janitor's duty. So what happened? <laughs> You're laughing, so I don't have to describe too much, right? So you noticed that um, your mind tells a story very quickly, creates an image, and then you think you know what's going on, right? Right. And you're so sure of it, right? Oh, John was off to school. You had this whole story set up, right? Can you imagine how much we do that? Right? And everybody else is doing that. So one way of looking at the mind is to see um, how the mind is fabricating our reality and our story and our existence. And I think it's the Dhammapada where it's, it starts with, um, phenomenon are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. And when they say heart, it's heart-mind, right? Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. So it starts here. And the practice of sati, mindfulness, is to know that it's starting here. So we're always thinking it's out there. But 
it, the watching is watching how we're watching and what we're creating. And a friend of mine told a story like this, and we all have stories like this. Um, he works at a very big urban high school. I think maybe his school has 4,000 students, which is the size of schools today. And uh, he asked for an appointment with the principal, but um, he felt in his heart that the principal really didn't want an appointment with him. This was his mind talking, right? He's busy, you know the story. But he really wanted to present a project and an idea. And that would need some funding, time, people getting on board, um, creating something not easy to do in um, a large underfunded school. And, um, but he wanted to do it anyway. So he, um, the day of the appointment came, and he um, walked to the principal's office, and he practices mindfulness, and so he, um, he noticed that this feeling of dread, <laughs> that his mind was telling a bit of a story about how the principal really probably didn't want to hear this or hear him. And he noticed, he put his hand on the door, and he went to knock, and um, the principal didn't answer. And so his mind said, oh, he just blew me off. I, you know, I'm not that important. He'll probably apologize. He went off to a meeting. It's fine. Um, and there were a couple of minutes where he was standing at the door, right? And he didn't know whether to knock again or walk away. So he walked away. He went up the hall, and he just watched his mind say, Nobody cares. It's not that important. No one wants to hear me. My ideas don't count. Things like that, right? Um, nothing will change in this school. There is no money. And he, it went on like this. And he watched his body contract, like his neck sort of tighten, and his shoulders hunker. Um, and he went and he walked back and he knocked again. And then the principal opened the door. And he had been on the phone on a conference call and couldn't get to do it. And said, welcome, you know, Ted, or, you know. And the principal was so enthusiastic about his idea and wanted to hear it and really um, wanted the suggestions, the feedback, not knowing whether they could implement something, but just really wanting to hear fresh new ideas. And my friend said, I created this world in my mind, and then I had to live with it. You know, he said the stress and tension wasn't what the principal said. It was the conditions that he created walking in there. This is mindfulness of mind. The third foundation is um, we look at the state of the mind. As we're in life, we're watching the state of the mind as we're unpacking it, right? And that takes a good degree of concentration. It takes a lot of practice. And this is really not an easy practice that we're rolling out over time. And it's a bumpy ride. We have to be very compassionate about it. Um, so we take in our worldly experience through the mind. But the minds are the chief of our experience. We learn to look at the state of the mind, if we can, openly, calm, with clarity seeing what's agitated, what's diluted, what's contracted, what's, where there's greed or anger or aversion, right? Or we're not seeing it clearly, which he could see as he was putting his hand on the door. 
And I really hope he met that equally. He, he had a lot of insight into that moment, but I also hope he had a lot of compassion <clears throat> for that moment. Because we're all stuck here like this. It's just like this for all of us. Not one of us. It's every mind. And um, so um, the, the thing that we talk about in this mindfulness class is uh, the ability to um, stand behind the waterfall of all those thousands of thoughts and ideas. And if there's intense emotion, as you know, right? If you add emotion, thought together, you could get swept into the waterfall and down the current and you could drown, right? You're just lost in it and lost and lost. Particularly <coughs> anger. Anger is a tough one. Fear is a tough one. Um, and for all of us, you could turn on the news and get lost. You could get caught in that. Which is why the practice of sati mindfulness is so much more important now more than ever, because we need that resilience, clarity, wisdom, and strength. Uh, so we want to get behind that waterfall. Right? We want to get behind it and, and look in. Um, and one experience I had, which I've shared before, sort of an embarrassing one, <laughs> but I'll share it again. Right? Ah, who cares, right? Um, I, was, I was in the dedicated practitioner program at Spirit Rock for two and a half years. And um, we, we would get in these small groups and try to talk through things. And um, there, I was in a small group trying to talk to things through things, and I didn't agree with the person who I thought was dominating it, so I already had a fixed view, right, and an opinion. Um, and uh, after that, we went to a bigger group with, with the, one of our teachers in the group, Temple Smith, and I'm actually sharing some of his comments from my um, notes. And uh, of course, the first thing that happened in the big group was the person that I was having the disagreement with, spoke up and discussed the disagreement, to which I then immediately jumped in in my New York state of mind. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody discusses this without, oh yeah? You know, I just felt like, you know, all my adrenaline was pumped in there, you know, getting puffed up like, I can be tough too. <laughs> and he immediately called me out on it immediately and said something like, you know, this person is obviously saying this through a veil of agitation, which only, <laughs> which only annoyed me more. And then I went on to discuss how, well, you know, can, can't we be real about how we feel around here? You know, really validate myself even more and get embroiled in it more. And when the group was over, I walked up to him and I said, um, you're going to have to explain to me what just happened because I'm, I'm really not sure. And he said, it was such a great lesson of humility, one, but two, of the comments that you made may have been valid, but look at the state of the mind that made those comments. Isn't that a great lesson? Oh, man. <laughs> Right? <coughs> Look at the state of the mind that made those comments. 
he was totally right. It, those comments could have been very much on the mark and truly insightful, which, looking back, I don't know um, if they were or not. I mean, uh, true, my ego is saying, they were totally insightful, you know. <laughs> Maybe not. But um, are we saying it with an open or a closed heart? What is the state of the mind? I have once similarly made a mistake like this. I don't want to say mistake. You know, it's not a mistake. It's just practice. We're human, right? We're going to do stuff like this all the time. And um, we really have to be hold ourselves in complete compassion because we didn't come to the planet enlightened, as far as I know. Uh, you could really, you could get many degrees, but there really isn't a place, a formal degree for enlightenment, you know, and even these little things. Um, a couple of years back, I was working with um, a family, and um, it was a 13-year-old girl, and um, it was just at the beginning of all the texting stuff, and I think then they did space, no, MySpace. It was the MySpace era. Okay. And uh, the parents got a hold of the MySpace account and they saw things on there that were frightening. <laughs> they were really scared. And Dad, um, Dad's answer to this was, um, I'm just going to now ignore my daughter. That's the punishment, like, right? I'm, I'm just going to ignore her. And he stopped talking to her. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, 13-year-old people, they get into some trouble. You know, they don't always do well. There are some signs that this young lady was not doing well, and it didn't, it need, she needed some help. And I remember really feeling um, this compassion for her and wanting to help very much so. So there have been many, many losses in this family. This family had not had an easy time. A young child had died in this family. It's just a rough time. And I know the compassion was there, right? And, and this desire to help and reach out. Um, but in the moment of being rushed and just concerned about pulling resources together, I had um, a closed heart moment, right? And my heart just closed a bit, and I was trying to convince the parents to come to some counseling and treatment classes, dad to come in. And before I knew it, I heard my mind say to the mother, um, well, you really do need to bring dad in because um, ignoring is not parenting. Mm. You got it, right? So. The, the practice of looking at mind is looking at where was the heart when I said that. What was the state of the heart when I said that? And I really meant it in goodwill, and it came out as ill will. So um, it's a very intricate, delicate practice. And the Buddha says, um, as rain seeps into an ill-thatched hut, so um, passion or craving or anger or any of those things um, in the undeveloped mind. It's the undeveloped mind. As rain doesn't seep into a well-thatched hut, so passion or craving does not seep in. Mm 
in the well-developed mind. So we go from the undeveloped mind to the well-developed mind um, through sati, through mindfulness, and compassion, through caring deeply for the state of our own mind and everyone else's together, mind and heart, mind and heart. So, um, from the Buddhist teachings, he gives the image that everybody, we always say monkey mind, and it does come from Buddhist stories, where we go from the mind, like a, the monkey in the forest, just swinging from limb to limb all over the place, um, jumping through the jungle, to um, this well-developed, purified mind, like a diamond, clear, transparent, understood, liberated through this practice, right? Through this practice over and over again, we um, begin to see, we begin to be present for the movement of the mind and to see that it's always changing and moving and we're not lost in the object that the mind's creating, but we're standing behind that waterfall and seeing it as an object. And when we can't do that, um, we don't get out our gorilla critic, right? We, we see that this is the nature of suffering itself. That's what the Buddha talked about. This is the suffering of being human. And so, um, what are we doing with our mindfulness practice? How are we doing this? Well, we're not on retreat, which would be wonderful if we were. Uh, that would be great. We would just be watching the mind day in, day out, and they'd cook us wonderful food. <laughs> and we'd be in this beautiful place. Aline and I have been in retreats <laughs> together. Um, so we, we're doing it here. We're practicing where we are with what we have. And um, some of the things that we're cultivating with sati or mindfulness is um, the way we're working with this is that um, our presence is embodied, we're connected to our body, our senses, the sensations in our body, our felt sense of the body. So it's not just mind up, up here, it's really embodied. And that when we're practicing mindfulness, whether on the cushion or off the cushion, we're learning to stay with our focus of concentration, the object, longer. Right? It's not just spotty, here, 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 but we're watching it all the way through. Like my friend was watching his state of mind to the point where he put his hand on the door and opened it. He was watching it all the way through. He wasn't happy about it, right? There was suffering in it, but there was mindfulness there. He could see his story. And um, we're staying with it till we could see the fading. This is really important. So I, I want to say something about that. So if you do mindful eating, right, do you notice how you're eating something delicious, say a piece of pie, right? And um, if you're like me, right, you're, my mind is lunging for the next bite, right? It doesn't stay with the chewing of the pie till the ending, till you don't taste the cherry pie anymore, the dissolution, right? Because we're on to the next, 
thing. We want the next sensation, the next sensate thing. This is really important for our practice because we miss the sweetness of the ending, the dissolution. We skip over that. And the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta stressed that you're seeing things rise, but you're seeing them fall, and you're seeing them fade away. And there's some real joy and sweetness in the fading away, whether it's fading away or you put it down, right? So like the next time you're really annoyed with somebody or irritated, and you could feel it as an object arising, irritation, don't talk to me now, I really don't want to be talked to, right? And you put it down, you moved it aside, you saw it as an object, you didn't get caught in the story of it, and then you had some ease, your heart opened to that person, you found some energy, something shifted. We need to pay attention to that, because that's an important moment in the practice, the fading and the dissolution the ending, and the calm, and these, that period. So in sati, you want to watch all the way through, whether it ended you or you ended it. I'm even, right? <laughs> Whichever happened, right? Um, and then also the part that we don't value so much is, I know some of you sat for 30 minutes here, and maybe you felt frustrated because your mind would not stop, right? But the fact that mindfulness is you brought your mind back to the object over and over, that you wake up, you remember, you recall, and then you come back to the present moment and your object. That's mindfulness. Like, hey folks, that's really important that you're doing that over and over again. Um, that's building mindfulness. Um, and the last one that I'll say is, which we've said all along, is that even when you're seeing these mind states that are uncomfortable, you may be seeing your greed, your anger, your aversion, or your ignorance, or deludedness, I don't want to see, I don't want to know, right? They're painful to see. We don't like seeing these things about ourselves. And sometimes it, we feel shame or... Um, hypercritical at ourselves or just we throw it away I can't do it I'm not worthy you know this unworthiness tape which we talk about all the time in here so mindfulness has to be affectionate and to see that um, the scientists are telling us that we're not the only ones with the problem <laughs> we have lots of company that this is really, like the Buddha said, the nature of being human. So we spread this with real affectionate kindness. So in doing that, I want to say something really interesting shifts, very subtle, um, which is that we can move less away from sense gratification. This feels good, I want more, get me more, the new thing, the excitement around the new thing, the excitement around getting what you want, and more, 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 that constant forward motion from the sweetness of that pause and ease when you did not get lost in a story or an object or yourself, and it dissolved. 
So the sweetness is coming from that inner experience of being with, rather than getting more to enhance myself. Does that make sense? Yes. And so there's ease. And what we're doing is we are changing our basic experience of happiness from getting more and being more and doing more to being, which is much more available. by practicing moment-to-moment awareness in our lives. Moment-to-moment mindfulness. Right here and right now. So, our minds, like a diamond, clear, transparent, liberated, and filled with space, empty, shining. And we already have it. So we'll end on this note. And um, the one other thing to say about it is, um, together we we need to maybe cultivate this standing behind the waterfall, you know, watching more, um, so that we're not so swept mm-hmm. right now. For those of us who have things to do, work to do, we're going to do it, right? And those of us um, who want to practice, we're going to practice. But um, the, the ability to land with some solidity, with not solidity, equanimity. Yeah? You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.